Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our third episode, Congressional Correspondent James Arkin talks with Representative Kevin Brady, the new chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, about Obamacare repeal and tax reform. Then, Real Clear Energy Editor Bill Murray talks with Senator Heidi Heitkamp about the Keystone Pipeline, energy issues, and if she'll run for re-election in 2018. Finally, national political correspondent Caitlin Huey Burns talks with Peter Buttigieg and Tom Perez, two of the candidates for Democratic National Committee chairman. First up, James Arkin talks with Republican Representative Kevin Brady of Texas. So I'm sitting here in the, uh, just outside the House chamber with uh, Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady. Uh, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, I guess where I want to start is uh, the first thing that, that House Republicans are, are hoping to do, the first big thing that's coming up for you guys this year, the, the repeal and the replacement of the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, you guys don't have sole jurisdiction of that in your committee, but a big chunk of it um, is coming through Ways and Means. We've heard kind of mixed messages on the timing a little bit. I think there's been some confusion. So specifically on the repeal bill, the, the reconciliation, when do you expect that bill to be out and when do you expect to start holding hearings and, and trying to get that moving on the House floor? So I know best the Ways and Means schedule. So we're moving ahead deliberately. Uh, we want to make sure we get it right, not rushed. But we are moving forward on a pretty steady clip. So the answer is sooner rather than later. Um, we think it's vitally important that Americans understand you know, relief is on the way. Uh, these high premiums, um, a few choices, um, small networks where you can't see local doctors and nurses, uh, they need something better than this. And so in the House, starting from Ways and Means Committee, we are determined you know, to put the solutions together to make sure it's part of the repeal bill as well and do that um, in a very timely manner. So I want to get to that um, point you made about some of the solutions in the repeal bill. But first I want to ask, I, I think last month you said that your hope was to have the, um, the repeal reconciliation bill on the president's desk this month in February. Is that still realistic or do you think that uh, it might be sometime in March or sometime later in the spring? Yes. Um, from the Ways and Means standpoint, uh, the speaker is certainly uh, driving this toward um, uh, a March. Um, um, timetable. I uh, can't speak to it beyond that, but that's the one I'm operating off of, both for uh, a markup and delivering that to uh, the Budget Committee. Gotcha. All right. and so you mentioned some of the replacement items. Uh, obviously, we've heard a lot about trying to get as much of the replacement as possible in reconciliation, given all the rules, uh, you know, in the Senate parliamentarian being the ultimate decider on what can and can't be in there. Um, how much right now do you think you're going to be able to get into the uh, reconciliation bill in terms of replacement and do you think it's going to be enough to mollify some of the concerns we've heard particularly in, in the Senate about wanting to have a repeal and a replacement done simultaneously? So, so Obamacare is failing um, and everyone knows it. It's just not fixable. Unfortunately, I don't expect Democrats to work in a positive way with this. So it's important that the um, the first opportunity to move this to the president's desk and get around a Democrat obstructionist filibuster is in this first bill. And so I think it's important not only that we repeal the most egregious parts of the Affordable Care Act, 
Can we start offering people some hope and put in place some of those um, key provisions? If you imagine um, replacing that huge monstrosity of Obamacare, driven out of Washington, you know, focused on what Washington needs, with more of a concept of a, a healthcare backpack that is tailored to what you need, uh, can travel with you from through your lifetime, from job to job, state to state, home, maybe start a business or a family, even into retirement, um, the tools you need in that backpack are better access to a health savings account to handle the out-of-pocket costs, control your medical records, and, and maybe perhaps most importantly, a way to finance um, a plan that's tailored to you. For those who don't get it at work and don't get it in Medicare and Medicaid, um, that financing uh, personal credit is very important. That is going to be those two elements, the health savings accounts um, and the means, that personal credit to finance a plan that works for you are, are the key components from the Ways and Means um, Committee. And, and both of those are going to be in the reconciliation package? We're working hard to, to try to make sure they are included. We recognize that the budget process we call reconciliation um, is limited and restricted um, by the Senate. And so our, our goal um, is to put in place as many of the key um, elements of replacement in that backpack concept as we can. And so uh, I've heard you mention, uh, we've heard uh, Chairman Walden from the Energy and Commerce Committee mention, and Senate Republicans as well, that you're not planning on doing this beyond reconciliation in sort of one big sweeping replacement bill, that it's going to be bits and pieces. Um, are you concerned that doing it in different bits and pieces is going to really extend the timeline for when you have a, a you know a full-scale market in place replacing the Affordable Care Act? And are you concerned that, that really complicates your ability to get things through the Senate once reconciliation is done? I'm still convinced a step-by-step -step approach is what the American people want. They don't want that 2,000-page bill. They they want to actually understand and think about um, how we replace the Affordable Care Act. Having said that, what we don't know yet is just how deep the Democrat obstructionism will run. Will they object to reforms they've supported in the past, uh, helping small businesses join together, be able to pool to get the same discounts the bigger ones do, uh, more control by the states to, state, to tailor innovative plans because a Texas looks different than a Florida or a Connecticut. You know, and, and people deserve a broad range of choices. Because we can't count on them uh, engaging constructively, um, we'll have to, to try to package the step-by-step -step bills in a way that can uh, overcome the filibuster in the Senate. That won't be an easy task. When you say you're not concerned, or you're concerned, you don't know how obstructionist or how oppositional Democrats will be, what are the, the potential routes that you can go to get beyond the filibuster if, uh, assuming the Senate doesn't get rid of the filibuster for some of those reforms you talk about? So we're considering the best um, uh, approaches um, on those step-by-step -step approaches um, uh, on the overall completion of it, but I think the reconciliation bill will provide the bulk of the changes um, and replacement elements which is why we're taking our time to get that right. And we're very cognizant that 
um, this is healthcare. This affects real people in a real way. Uh, and so we want to make sure we give peace of mind as we do this to those who are in the ACA today, uh, who want plenty of time to, to stay on their plan until the uh, replacement is ready, until the states have a chance to re-engage, um, to approve state plans, and a free market can be restored, so there's wider choices. Um, so as we move forward, and reconciliation will play the, uh, the bulk of, a, of the role in this, um, we recognize that it will take some time to complete the transition. Has a decision been made on exactly how long that transition will be, whether it will be two years, three years, or...? Yeah, it, it hasn't, only because we're listening to the states uh, who want more control for their constituents, and we're listening to the providers about how soon they could restore a free market. We don't want to, um, to rush them. We want to make sure they can get it right. And so no decision's been made that I know of. All right. Well, moving from the Affordable Care Act now to the other thing that, you know, the, the big lift that the Ways and Means Committee has got this year, uh, tax reform, uh, something that Republicans have been talking about doing for a long time. Obviously, we know the difficulty in, in getting a, a, you know, a major tax reform done. I want to ask, you were at the White House last week to talk with the President and uh, some other lawmakers about this. Um, what was that experience like? Just tell me a little bit about what it's like to sit uh, you know, with President Trump in the White House and kind of how he was interacting with, with lawmakers. Well, I was encouraged by it. The focus was on trade. Clearly, this president's all in on getting the economy moving. So that's why his early steps, o Obamacare has really slowed down job growth locally. Every small business will uh, tell you this. Lifting the red tape off our local businesses, the president has been very aggressive on signaling things are going to change there. Then tax reform uh, uh, as well is all about um, jump-starting this economy, um, ensuring that we've eliminated every tax incentive to move jobs overseas. In fact, creating the incentives for companies to hire now um, to be able to compete for the long term. And so, uh, and trade's about finding new customers. So it was, I was encouraged by the discussions uh, that we had with the president. Uh, he's got, a, I think, an excellent economic team around him, but he's digging into the details himself, which I really appreciate because he's got a thousand, you know, issues on his plate, and he's still taking the time to really uh, drill down on where he wants to go and how Republicans want him to, to or want to help him get there. So is he asking you detailed questions about your plan or, or some of the policies that you guys have proposed? So last week we focused on, on trade while in the White House, but mm -hmm. the answer is yes. He's been on, in constant communications with the speaker, his team, economic team with ours on Ways and Means Committee. Yeah, they are drilling down. The good news is we start from two plans that were 80% the same. So we're working on some of the, the differences and narrowing them. I'm really optimistic uh, and confident that tax reform will occur in 2017, this year. So when, when we've heard about tax reform in the last couple of weeks, the, one of the big things that we keep hearing about is, is border adjustability. Um, I think there's been some confusion out there about what exactly that is, what you're proposing, um, and how it's differed from what the president proposed on the campaign trail. Give me the, the elevator pitch. You know, if you were had 30 seconds to explain to someone what your proposal is, uh, so that you could get support from them for it, how would you describe it? American companies today are fighting with one hand tied behind their back, both here and abroad. That's because our competitors, China, Canada, uh, Mexico, Europe. Uh, they have lower tax rates, uh, they don't tax worldwide, and they border adjust their taxes, which means a China 
takes off a major tax, the VAT tax, when it's headed to the U.S., they add that VAT tax, they slap it on American products heading into their country. Every country does this except us. As a result, a product made in America is at a tax disadvantage here and a tax advantage overseas as well. And so what we propose is that um, we no longer tax worldwide. We tax only on one test. Is your product and service consumed in the U.S.? If so, it will be taxed equally at a low business rate of 20%. This is critical because it ensures that we finally have a level playing field here in the United States for the first time in decades. So competition won't occur based on tax codes. It'll be, uh, it'll be based on price and, and quality and service. That's good news. Allows us to simplify the international tax code. But here's the most important part. Doing this, border adjustability, ending the Made in America tax for our exports, lowering those rates and no longer taxing worldwide, not only eliminates every tax incentive to move U.S. companies and jobs overseas, it reverses it and establishes America as a 21st century magnet for new business investment and new companies as well. That's why we're doing this. So in the conversation that we've heard the last couple of weeks about this, uh, we saw the, the Wall Street Journal interview where the president said that this was too complicated and that he wasn't in favor of it. We then saw the White House suggest that they, they could be in favor of this. They used the example of paying for the border wall as one way that this revenue could be used. Then they walked back and said that this is one of the options available for that. And I know there are some concerns on the other side of, of the Capitol uh, about this particular aspect of your tax reform. Chairman Hatch uh, has not said whether or not he's supportive of it yet. Are, how confident are you that you can get the kind of consensus you need, both sides of the Capitol and the White House, to include this uh, border adjustability in broader tax reform? I'm confident that at the end of the day, uh, we will no longer have a tax code that favors foreign products over American-made products, that will no longer tax our Made in America products being sold around the world, and that we will successfully eliminate every tax incentive to move jobs overseas. I was encouraged by the President's tweet this weekend saying enough's enough, in effect, uh, it's time that we tax equally in the United States. Clearly he understands the power uh, of this. And what I'm um, sensing as well because this is a provision that's well known around the world. It's just new to the U.S. The more lawmakers and policymakers understand the power of equal taxation in the U.S. and how that helps us leapfrog to the front as one of the best places on the planet for new jobs and investment, the more support we're getting. And so I'm actually encouraged by these healthy questions, healthy discussions, at the end of the day, um, we're going to level the playing field in the U.S. And so more broadly then on, on tax reform, um, you said it sounded like you, there's about 80 percent similarity between your plan and, and the plan that the, the president had during the campaign. Um, is that 80 percent enough consensus? Uh, how difficult do you think it's going to be to work out the 20 the percent difference there to get the White House on board with a, with a major tax overhaul? Yeah, so I'm pretty optimistic because really the differences were about uh, how the design of the international code, which we were very bold on the Republican side, that's why they're digging into these um, provisions um, that we um, identified. That's, that's a very healthy thing. I like the direction we're going. 
There some other changes on the rates. We're having good discussions there as well. So, boy, when you start with that much shared um, common ground, and then recognizing that the House Tax Reform Plan includes tax ideas from 23 of our senators who've been involved in tax reform as well. My, my sense is we don't just share goals, we share solutions. That's a good starting part, point. And I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about the Senate developing its ideas on this more so, because I know Chairman Hatch is absolutely committed to tax reform. And do you think that it's, I mean, it seems to be risky to try to do tax reform through reconciliation, the, the same process that you're using for the repeal um, and replacement of the Affordable Care Act, simply because with 52 Republican senators, if more than two uh, don't support tax reform, you know, that, that's it on the, on the opportunity to do it. And obviously there are going to be so many different components going around that it seems like it could be relatively easy to lose a couple of senators over one particular sticking point. Uh, is that a concern? I mean, it, it seems like you're trying to really thread a needle on something that's a, a major overhaul. So there's no question uh, I'd prefer a broadly bipartisan tax reform plan. And I've invited Democrats to engage in the House side to do exactly that. I don't know uh, if they will. I hope they do. Um, but if not, if, if, if obstructionism is, is the word of the year, then reconciliation is the, the tool we use um, that has its restrictions. But I'm confident at the end of the day, um, it will be worth um, going around that filibuster in the Senate to get this to the President's day. This is once-in-a-generation opportunity. Hasn't happened for 30 years. May not happen again for 30 years. So 2017 has to be the year we find a way to fix this broken tax code and get, get America back in the game again. So one, one last question for you, and this is on the, the bigger picture. I mean, you said that this is a, a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Um, but we saw in 2009 and 2010, after President Obama's victory, that the Democrats moved very quickly on, on some very big legislative items, and there was public backlash to that. They ended up losing uh, congressional majorities. Uh, because of it, um, it, it really prevented President Obama from being able to do a lot uh, through Congress the rest of his term. And yes, President Trump won the election, but he won without the popular vote. Uh, House Republicans and Senate Republicans retained their majorities, but they lost seats. Do you have any concern that trying to do these, you know, enormous overhauls of health care and the tax code are misreading the mandate and that there could be a significant public backlash to, to what you're trying to do? I think here's the big difference. Um, President Obama forced through government run health care when the public wasn't asking for that. They just wanted their health care more affordable. One of the reasons there is a unified Republican Congress and on tax reform, um, boy, the public is just, Americans are just sick of the code we have today. It's so costly, it's so complex, just unfair. And I know in my town hall meetings, they are hungry for this. Small businesses are, are just counting on us, delivering tax relief for them so they can invest more in their local business. So, boy, I see a big difference between the, the Obamacare you know, global warming uh, priorities of the Obama administration that wasn't shared by the public. And, and our focus, which is get the economy going and deliver affordable health care that's personalized and not what Washington needs, but what the American people need. Now, Bill Murray talks with Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota. 
Well, thank you, Senator Heitkamp, for being here. I really appreciate you uh, your time. It's very busy as the Senate is moving its way through all sorts of things, whether it's Congressional Review Act or nominations, which are taking longer than we thought. But uh, one of the things that's important is with Dakota Access and Keystone Pipeline, uh, XL okay. Pipeline, uh, now being okayed by the Trump administration, where do we stand now? Is it, are we going to see these things built? Or is there going to be more legal action? Where are we? Well, Dakota Access is pretty much built already. We just have to take that next, you know, many feet um, underneath the river um, or underneath the lake to complete the project. And so we expect that the Corps of Engineers will be issuing an easement um, and that once that easement's issued, the company will be aggressively moving forward. Um, I, I also imagine that there will be continuing litigation. But um, given that um, the judge in the past has refused to issue a temporary restraining order, um, based on the facts as presented to him, I think, I think uh, likelihood of success on the merits isn't that great to mm -hmm. stopping um, Dakota access. And so hopefully we'll get um, through that chapter, get it done, and get it done in a way that keeps everyone safe, which is a huge priority. On uh, Keystone XL, the president has invited TransCanada to um, ask uh, for an, a permit to cross uh, the, into the United States. Mm -hmm. um, he said he'll be negotiating that. I don't know what that means. There's a lot of pipe that's stockpiled along the route already. Mm -hmm. And so if this is uh, American-made uh, uh, steel, then that may present some problems with the existing stockpiles. <laughs> um, so we'll see that move forward. But unfortunately, the lesson from Keystone, which was taken to um, Dapple in a big way, is that if you don't like the source of the energy, mm -hmm. what you should do is stop the transportation of the energy. It's a really dangerous precedent, and hopefully we'll move beyond that. One of the things that's also important in your state is coal. There's some legislation that you've pushed forward. It's had some success concerning clean coal. But that's also a keep it in the ground issue for many, uh, many of the same people who are upset with other pipelines. You know, it's interesting because um, the, the legislation that we've been advancing would expand 45Q, which is a tax provision that would enable um, uh, greater incentives for carbon sequestration and carbon utilization. What does that mean? It means that technologies that should be developed in this country can be developed, can, um, can be deployed in ways that are economic. Why is that important for someone like Sheldon Whitehouse who is on this bill? He sees the importance of those technologies being commercialized and utilized here in terms of looking at what happens with coal utilization across the world. Um, and so there's a win-win for us in all of this. But the critical piece of, of what's happening, I think, with coal is that unlike um, oil, which is pretty fungible, moves into the markets, can be refined a lot of places, uh, Coal is fundamentally used to generate electricity. And if the utility company doesn't put new coal-fired power on the planning spreadsheet, mm -hmm. we aren't going to see utilization of coal in this country. And so what we're trying to do is get the regulatory certainty that we need to make that happen. I was recently at Basin Electric Annual Meeting. I have a long relationship with Basin, served on the board of directors of Dakota Gas. So it's a group that I know well, and, and their membership is, is rural. It's a lot of farmers, a lot of ranchers. 
And I asked him, it was a room of probably 500 people, how many of you think that we don't even need to talk about this anymore because the issue got resolved? Only two hands went up. <laughs> and so the, the great thing, um, thing that we've gotten as a result of this election in the coal lane has really been time to develop the technology. And we think once that technology is developed, it's going to be easier to get the um, investment from Wall Street. It's going to be easier to see those uh, resources being deployed across the world. So in your four years here, and you're up for election in less than two years, I mean, you were a, state, a statewide office holder in, in North mm -hmm. Dakota, and now you're representing your, the state. Has anything changed in the last four years? Obviously, it's a very partisan time. And the reason I'm asking is that it's interesting, this past election has kind of, kind of forced issues that may not have been obvious and may not be true in terms of the trades and jobs versus green energy. I know your father was in the trades. Do you see this as a false dichotomy? Do you see this as a shame that, that, that the job creation out of energy has to be played against the idea that to be better for the environment, you pretty much have to, to shut down a lot of the, the trade union jobs that exist? You know, I, I think that the first thing that we have to do is make sure that we have abundant, reliable, affordable, and uh, redundant power in this country, whether it's electrical generation, whether it is um, our movement forward, which is really a national goal of energy self-sufficiency. I believe in all of the above, and I don't think that you have to have the trade-offs that people think you have to have off. I think that you have to have, you have to get away from the hell no on both sides. You know, we aren't going to compromise, we aren't going to do this, and you have to look for the spot in the middle. And that's really, as, a, as somebody who comes from a red state, who was a state office holder, you know, the whole while I worked with Republican legislature, mm -hmm. whether I was tax commissioner or whether I was attorney general, you learn how to negotiate, you learn how to work for the betterment of the people by just appreciating and understanding both sides of the issue. And I think that's hopefully the sensibility that I brought to Washington, D.C. So speaking of negotiating, you were in the running for a cabinet position, at least to be talking with now President Trump. What were you talking about there at the uh, Trump Towers back well, in January? I, I, I talked a lot <laughs> about the issues that we just talked about, Keystone XL, DAPL. We talked a lot about bringing back jobs. I think this is the president who is myopically focused on jobs and getting good paying jobs back to areas that have been suffering economically. That's a goal we should all share with this president. We should figure out how we're going to do that. Um, I, we had a chance to talk about the XM Bank, which I've worked very um, diligently to try and uh, first get reauthorized and now get up and running. And how did he feel about that? Um, you know, I think the president was concerned that we don't have an export finance agency that can do a deal over $10 million and that that's costing jobs. It wasn't so much that he, he, he as I say, I don't bleed for the chairman of the board of Boeing or, or Caterpillar or or GE, they, they've got options. Those options are to ship jobs overseas. Mm -hmm. Guess what? If we want those jobs here, we have to have an export financing agency that's up and running. And I think he understood that, and he understood how critically important it is to small manufacturing jobs that are in the supply chain, how critically important it is to um, just making sure that we, we support American jobs with every resource we can. You are a co-sponsor on several congressional resolutions, trying to pull back on some of the draft regulations that President Obama put through in the last part of his uh, term. Yeah. Do you think President Obama overstepped? Do you think he I, actually was overly aggressive in terms of environmental regulation? I think that people did not listen. When, on, on waters of the United States, when I would put up a map and you could see the prairie pothole region of, region of North Dakota, and I would say, 
do you think you really have jurisdiction? EPA, we have to call EPA when, when you're, you're farming around this, this pothole? And they say, well, we aren't saying it's waters, we're saying it could be. I said, that's a ridiculous thing to say. And there should be a su surface connection. But people got so, the, the waters issue has been in and out of court for 20, 30 years. So what does that tell us? It tells us Congress isn't doing its job. And that's why my approach to it, along with Senator Inhofe and Senator Donnelly and, and Senator Barrasso, we introduced a bill saying, here's your lane. We'll help you define what is water. So because you keep thinking you need to swim outside that lane. Um, when you look at clean power plan, I think people were willing to have a discussion about this. But in North Dakota, we went from an 11% reduction of CO2 to a 45% reduction. There's no way we could have met that target. And so why even give us an impossible target? And I think that's the frustration. The frustration was to, to satisfy uh, an interest group, you did irrational things. And I think now we have a chance to have a conversation about all of this, but I am equally frustrated with Congress because they, there's a lot of you know, a lot of fist pounding about oh those bureaucrats. Well, you don't like what the bureaucrats are doing. Legislate. So, are you running for re-election? Have you announced already? <laughs> no, I. You know, I've got. Question? We've got a huge agenda. It's not something that's urgent, and uh, we'll make the decision when I think the time is right. Do you think that things will become less contentious, or will this session, the 115th session of Congress, remain? Very much at loggerheads and as partisan as we've seen in uh, very long our lifetimes. Boy, I'd like to think you know we we've been able to get things done even in very contentious um, sessions. A great example of that is what we did with oil exports. Mm -hmm. You know, when I came and I said I want to, uh, this is a policy that has makes no sense in balance of trade. I mean, I can give you chapter and verse, and um, I said it's not something people have really thought about or even know exists. I think we can get this reversed and, and make a difference. We're currently exporting almost 100 million barrels a day of American crude. That's good news. It's good news for our allies who need that source of energy. It's good news for our consumers. It's good news for energy self-sufficiency in our country. And so my point in telling you this is with a good idea and people who really care about advancing it, like I did, I think you get stuff done. So if I didn't, I wouldn't probably still want to be here. So. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Senator. This has been a great time. You and uh, good luck with everything and hope to see you around. Okay, thanks. Finally, Caitlin Huey Burns talks with two of the men running to lead the Democratic Party. Peter Buttigieg is up first. So I wanted to talk to you, just kind of start out off with kind of why you're running. You have a really impressive resume, a degree from Harvard, Rhodes Scholar, served in Afghanistan, mayor, mayor of a Midwestern city. You're already talked about as a presidential candidate material. Um, so why run for the job of DC, DNC chair? It's kind of an insider job. <laughs> well, it's not a job that I think anybody grows up uh, thinking they're going to want to aspire to, but it's very important. And like a lot of people, I'm thinking about things differently after the result of the election last year. Uh, I'm running because our party needs a fresh start, and in some ways it's not so different than the situation in South Bend when I decided to run for mayor of my hometown. It was a moment that called for new leadership, it called for new thinking, and, uh, and I think that's where we are as a party right now, too. Uh, I just don't believe that the solutions that our party needs are going to come from Washington, and so I think having the 
perspective of a, of a mayor who's been able to drive a turnaround in, in a city like South Bend, it's the right kind of experience to get to DNC where it needs to go. You know, on that note, you had a really interesting tweet yesterday um, when all the Democratic senators and Congress uh, men and women were kind of tweeting about their anger over um, the confirmation of Betsy DeVos for um, uh, the for, uh, education secretary. You you tweeted, uh, upset about consequences of the DeVos vote? Don't get mad. Get on your school board. DNC should support candidates at every level. And I hadn't really seen other people, other Democrats, uh, talking that way. Um, and so what? tell me a little bit what you hope to accomplish with, with that kind of message. Well, so many of the decisions that affect people's lives are made at the state and local level. And frankly, we've been outclassed as a party on this because Republicans have patiently and cleverly built majorities on county councils and, and school boards and state legislatures for decades now. And that, that of course, has knock-on effects at other levels of politics, including through things like redistricting. So I think it's time for us as a party to pay much more attention to that state and local level and not treat the presidency or the federal offices as though they're the only offices that matter. You know, as a mayor in Mike Pence's Indiana, I have a front row uh, experience when it comes to what happens when you allow a state government to be taken over by a ideologically driven majority. Uh, now, as people are asking themselves what they can do, and, and the presidential election isn't exactly around the corner, there's a lot of scope for local and state-level activism. And I hope that people watching what's going on in Washington are inspired, not just to hold our members of Congress accountable, but also to take action closer to home. You know, on, on that note as well, Democratic senators in Washington have, um, you know, the focus has been on them largely because we've had the confirmation hearings. Um, Congress has played a key role already in this administration. Um, you know, Democratic lawmakers have been staying up all night protesting some of these votes. I'm wondering what you think that kind of thing does for the party. Is that um, a, a temporary, you know, symbol of, of you know, fighting for what they believe in? Is it purely symbolic? Is there anything productive coming out of that? Well, I think it's going to be difficult for Democrats in Washington to collaborate on policy when the other side is not acting in good faith. But it is important to, to take a stand. And I think the uh, the soapbox that you have as a member of Congress or as a uh, member of the Senate is one of the uh, vital tools that we have in order to expose what's going on, in order to point out when promises are being broken, and in order to show what's really happening beneath the, or behind the veil of the Trump administration and the Republican Congress. You know, congressional Republicans are going to have to be held accountable for whether they are going to follow their unpopular president off the cliff or whether they're going to start thinking for themselves. And uh, uh, between grassroots organizing and the actions of our Democratic leaders in Washington, uh, it's going to fall to us as Democrats to create that accountability. Yeah, on, on the subject of, of this kind of grassroots organizing, I mean, we are seeing a very active um, liberal base right now. I mean, in way, you know, a base that's um, motivated or uh, energized in a way that um, – they seem to have not been in, in November. Um, it seems like, you know, Donald Trump has been energizing Democrats uh, better than, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton or, or former President Obama could. Um, I'm wondering what, what you, why you think that is. Why now? Why didn't we see this kind of energy and activism uh, last fall? Well, I think that people have been shocked into a new level of involvement and activism. 
Uh, there, there are folks who've been involved the whole time, and there are others who maybe imagine that business or philanthropy were a better venue to solve problems. But the reality is, in the world we live in now, uh, even the best work that you do for uh, fellow Americans could be wiped out by the stroke of a pen, uh, especially when we have the kind of arbitrary and, and even dangerous decisions that are being made in Washington. So it's a moment when I think there's common cause between people who've always thought of themselves as political and people who are just now becoming more politically conscious. And that's a very important moment for Democrats to harness. Now, one thing you'll notice about recent actions like the Women's March or the, uh, the protests at the airports is they generally weren't initiated by politicians. And that's okay. What the de- next Democratic chair needs to realize is that we have to figure out where the party is on in the broader network of progressive groups and, and activists rather than the other way around. It doesn't all have to funnel through the political process, but we do have to make sure that we're in constant dialogue and working side by side with those who are standing up and speaking out. So when the time does come to turn this into electoral action at the polling booth, uh, we're not arriving on people's doorstep in October, but we're building on a relationship that started at a What do you make of comparisons that people have drawn from this kind of activism versus the Tea Party movement that we started to see in 2009? I mean, I've been struck by, um, you know, the town halls that we've seen just so far this year, and I expect that we'll see uh, more uh, energy geared towards uh, lawmakers in the next recess um, this, this interesting backlash against uh, changes to the health care law. I mean, it's almost the, the reverse of what we saw um, several years ago. But I'm wondering what you make of, of those comparisons. Is this, is this the, the Democratic version of the Tea Party going on? Well, I think it is, but it's better. It's similar and dissimilar. I mean, what's similar is you've got a lot of folks who are fired up and they're concentrating a lot of their energy on holding their, their uh, elected officials accountable. Uh, for example, our uh, Republican member of Congress in, in my district uh, was having uh, town hall or, or uh, uh, staff events uh, all around the district, but uh, did not have one in South Bend, which is by far the largest uh, city she represents, I think because uh, they're uh, a little bit afraid of the heat. Uh, now, what's different, though, is that the Tea Party was largely funded by billionaires and by uh, a carefully constructed organization that was uh, directing money uh, toward these groups in order to create the impression of authentic grassroots organizing. And uh, that's not to minimize the fact that uh, a bunch of people uh, uh, were, were activated, but it really came from the top down, even though it didn't look that way. This, for better or for worse, really is coming from the bottom up. I have to say, uh, in many ways, uh, those of us in the political world are uh, racing to catch up mm. uh, with uh, the organizers and, and the individuals who create these organic movements and actions. And I think that's actually a very healthy sign for our democracy. Yeah, I think that's been one of the, the more striking things about this. I mean, just watching um, Democratic lawmakers, you know, rush to the airports and, and, you know, rush to participate in some of these spontaneous um, rallies and protests has been really interesting to watch. Um, but, but this bottom kind of bottom up approach, um, you know, does the party still need a, uh, a single leader? And do you see the DNC chairperson uh, being the leader, the de facto leader of the Democratic Party since, um, you know, the Democrats don't have uh, the presidency anymore? Well, certainly at a moment when you don't have the White House and don't even have a presidential nominee, uh, the role of the DNC chair does include filling that gap. And it's going to be very important for the next chair uh, to carry and articulate a, a Democratic message and to speak to the values that bring us together as a party. At the same time, you know, at the end of the day, it's an organizing job. And for every hour that you spend 
on television. There's 10 that you got to spend behind the scenes doing the unglamorous party building work that's really most important right now. And again, I don't think the solutions are going to be top down. So what we really need is to cultivate leadership across our 57 states and territories. And it's going to be very important for the next Democratic chair to have an authentic relationship, a partnership built on respect with the state chairs and the local party organizations that really know what's going to make sense for their respective communities. What's uh, on that note? What's what's the biggest? What's your biggest takeaway from the 2016 election? I've heard from several Democrats running for this office and for others saying that the the party wasn't connected as well as they should have been with the state parties cultivating the bench and that sort of thing. Is is that what went wrong? Is it um, a lack of of you know visiting some of these states more times than others? Um, what, what's your biggest takeaway from the election? Well, when you lose the Electoral College by this close of a margin, every competing uh, explanation will be at least a little bit correct. But mm-hmm. I'll tell you a couple things that I've observed. One is the importance of talking about people's own lives rather than talking about politicians. So I think we fell into uh, a bit of a trap of talking about Donald Trump more than we were talking about the voters that we appealed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, people at home in places like South Bend were saying, uh, you know, realizing that they, they saw us talking about him, but they wondered who was talking about me, uh, who is mm. talking about how these things are going to affect us in our everyday lives. I also do think that we need to do a better job of showing up in different kinds of communities across all our 57 states and territories. You know, I, I think the high watermark of this was when Howard Dean implemented the 50-state strategy in the Democratic Party in 2005, which led to victories in 06 and 08. And I think we need to remember that a, an authentic 50-state strategy isn't just a matter of deploying resources, but really building plans, working side-by-side with those state and local leaders. Uh, There's no question that we've got to get back to that, that we can't treat the presidency like it's the only office that matters, uh, or it'll set us back across the country and, and even come back to bite us when the presidency is on the line in four years. You know, after Republicans lost in 2012, the RNC and um, Republican operatives uh, came up with an autopsy report, so to speak. Um, now, the candidate they eventually nominated didn't quite follow the uh, messages sent from that autopsy. But I'm wondering if you think the DNC should do a similar type of, of post-election report. We certainly need to examine 2016, look at uh, what happened and why, and uh, do that kind of after-action report where we learned. But what we can't do is get absorbed in reliving 2016. You know, I think uh, there's a real danger for us as a party to wind up relitigating uh, a primary that's in the re- rearview mirror and spending more time on uh, devolving into a factional struggle than pulling the party together at a moment when we need to be more unified than ever. Uh, so for every moment that we spend Uh, looking at any lessons we can learn from the past, uh, we've got to do that much more work focusing on the future, knowing that the rules of the game keep changing and staying ahead of uh, the the things that are happening before us rather than fighting the last war. Um, A a former uh, Democratic Senate candidate has has launched a group to focus on um, access to to voting. Um, How big of a deal is that uh, as it comes to the party. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, focusing on redistricting, um, focusing on access to, uh, you know, increasing voter um, access. Um, I'm wondering how, how critical is that to these kinds of elections? Did that make a big difference? Yeah, first of all, I, I think Jason Kander is one of the uh, real bright in our party and, and was very excited to see him decide to launch a 
launch that initiative. I think that we need, not just as a party, but as a country, uh, to pay attention to the uh, the issues with our democracy itself. Uh, you know, the, the unfortunate reality is uh, there's one party in American politics that has decided that it's better off if not everybody is able to vote. And that's a very dangerous thing, uh, regardless of your ideology or your values. It's an extremely dangerous thing when some people in politics, politics decide that uh, voter participation is a bad thing. So we've got to make sure that we're tearing down obstacles. We need to make sure that we're straightening out the record when uh, wild and false claims are, are made about what's going on in polling places. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, wild things said about what happened in, uh, on Election Day, but I've yet to meet anybody who thinks those sorts of things happened at their own precinct. Uh, and that, that ought to tell you something. Uh, and we've got to recognize that voter suppression is itself the most well-documented and widespread form of voter fraud. Um, and so you, uh, the, the DNC chair race will come to an end at the end of this month. Um, what, do you, what do you feel about your chances? Well, we feel good. We found that uh, our trajectory has, has been fantastic. We uh, uh, found ourselves in the top tier of candidates within a few days of getting in. Uh, obviously, it's uh, very competitive. There are some terrific Democrats who are all competing for this role. Uh, I think that the, the reason we're going to pull it out is that uh, while all of us are saying largely similar things about what needs to be done, I, I think the key to our success is, is twofold. First, that we, we don't represent any particular faction in the party, that uh, we really think that we can build a consensus about where the party needs to go. And the second, that, that I'm better positioned to deliver the things that all of the competitors for this race say that uh, we ought to be doing. And my contention is if, if we want to reach out to a new generation of voters, let's put in somebody from the new generation. If we want to implement a 50-state strategy, why not put in somebody who's been working and, and running campaigns and, and winning them in a, a red state like Indiana? And if we say we mean it when we're going back to state and local politics as the backbone of our organizing, why not put in a mayor whose bread and butter is that kind of uh, local organizing that we all think we need to get back to? Well, I will uh, we'll leave it at that. That that seems like a good way to, to wrap this up. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and best of luck um, at, the, at the races. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Good talking to you. Now, Caitlin talks with Tom Perez about his vision for the party. Where, where in the country are you today? I am in uh, New Jersey right now. Oh, okay. Okay, great. And you were just in Wisconsin this week, right? I was in uh, Kansas and Wisconsin. Kansas and Wisconsin. Uh, uh, during uh, talking to voters in rural America. Yeah, I make house calls in this job, and uh, I want to learn directly from uh, the people. Uh, wh why is it? Uh, what do we have to do better? Uh, to connect with voters in rural America, because it's clear from the results of uh, this past election that uh, we we have to uh, dramatically uh, revise our strategy to connect to voters in rural America with our message of opportunity and uh, and, and economic security for everyone. Yeah, I, w I wanted to ask you about that specifically, Wisconsin, since you were just there. Um, you know, why did Hillary Clinton lose there? Was it ma was it a matter of more ads? Was it a matter of you know she didn't go there enough? Um, why do you think that Democrats lost states like Wisconsin this time around? Well, Donald Trump uh, actually got less votes than uh, Mitt Romney did, and uh, uh, in 2012, and we lost Wisconsin. I think for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, we we, um, again, ignored the basics. I'm a big believer in organizing uh, and persuasion, getting out there in communities, not just a couple months before an election, but 
having a consistent presence in communities. And uh, we underperformed in Milwaukee because we didn't connect with voters. Uh, we took them for granted. Uh, we didn't do persuasion. Uh, we over-relied on data analytics. And then we got crushed in the rural parts of the state because we, again, had no organizing presence uh, And the story of uh, Wisconsin is similar to the story of uh, Michigan insofar as uh, uh, both states, we got clobbered in the rural uh, corners of the state in, in no small measure because we didn't have a physical presence there. Uh, we, we weren't. We weren't organizing, and uh, and I think the Democratic Party needs to get back to basics. We need to. Uh, I'm, I'm running for the DMC chair because we've got to um, make a very clear statement uh, that uh, we're not simply the party that elects the president. That's not the, fun- that's not the sole function of the DMC. Our function is to make sure that we have uh, robust parties everywhere and a presence everywhere, so that we can help. Democrats up and down the tickets from uh, the school board to the Senate, as well as the president. And and what I learned in Wisconsin, uh, for instance, was uh, you know voters in uh, the northwest corner where I spent some time, they felt uh, ignored. They felt that the Democratic Party uh, forgot about them. And uh, in other places, uh, people take it a step further. They, they feel the party isn't simply ignoring them, but we're looking down. At rural America, and uh, and so we need to we need to do a much better job of, of connecting with people and with communicating that uh, if 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 your economic security and the pocketbook issues that surround that are your number one issue, the Democrats are your party because we have been the party of good job creation. We have been the party that has protected the safety net of Medicare and Medicaid and, and the Republicans want to, you know, privatize social security and voucherize uh, Medicare and uh, eviscerate uh, the Affordable Care Act, the, the pillars of, of, of our safety net. And, and we haven't done a good enough job as Democrats of, of communicating our optimistic message of, of, of opportunity in these corners of the country, and, and we're paying a price for it. You know, I wanted to ask you about, uh, kind of on that note, using Republicans and Donald Trump as a foil, you know, to kind of rebuild the party. We saw last night, for example, Elizabeth Warren on the Senate floor. You've seen Democratic lawmakers uh, drawing a hard line against this president. Is that a productive way to grow the party? In other words, what what does that do for the party, given that, you know, Democrats are in the minority in Washington, they don't really have the avenues with which to uh, effectively, um, you know, challenge this president when it comes to nominees, um, although they could use it on the Supreme Court. Um, what do you think that is doing for the party? Oh, I think, uh, I think we have to stand up to Donald Trump. I think we should uh, accord Donald Trump the same courtesy that Mitch McConnell accorded Barack Obama. Uh, remember, you know, uh, Donald Trump lost the popular vote by something like three million. Uh, he comes into office as the most unpopular president in American history, and he's trying to govern as if he has this broad mandate to um, eviscerate you know, core pillars of, of our democracy. And uh, what you're seeing from Democrats, and what you're seeing in these rallies across America, I don't, I don't, 
recall in American history uh, um, an outpouring of opposition like we saw not only the day after the inauguration, but in, in the weeks that have followed in airports across America. I was in Kansas yesterday, and they talked about the protesters that were in Wichita, and the remarkable thing about the Wichita airport is there's no international traffic. But people wanted to be there to show that uh, he does not stand for our values. And so I applaud Democrats who are standing up uh, to nominees who are uh, all about voter suppression. You know, nominees who don't know what the Individuals with Disability and Education Act is. Uh, you know, nominees who are normalizing ethics lapses. Uh, that's not what we should be normalizing. So I think Democrats uh, need to stand up, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they're doing that. And uh, what we're seeing right now is a classic example of overreach, uh, trying to eviscerate the Affordable Care Act. And, and for the first time in recent memory, you, you see uh, polling showing that a majority of people support the Affordable Care Act because they're finally learning the truth about it rather than uh, the, the lies that were peddled repeatedly by Republicans. They're, they're learning, for instance, that you know that if they're diabetic, they, they have health insurance because of the Affordable uh, Care Act. Uh, their 24-year-old can live at home and stay on their uh, health insurance because of the Affordable Care Act. The senior who has 1000 or $2,000 in prescription drug benefits because of the Affordable Care Act. So, People are starting to realize the overreach, and that's why you're seeing uh, the protests and the organizing that I think uh, we will use as momentum into the 2017 elections in Virginia, uh, New Jersey, and, and then the 2018 elections elsewhere. Where was this energy in November? I mean, why now? Why weren't, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or the many um, uh, Democratic leaders out on the campaign trail, why weren't they able to kind of uh, stir up this kind of energy? Well, it's important to, you know, again, I've, I've, I've said this before, I mean, we there were mistakes that were made in the campaign uh, that, uh, you know, had significant ill effects, not organizing. You know, no, there was not a persuasion campaign in Ohio. There wasn't a persuasion campaign in grassroots organizing in uh, Michigan or, or, or Pennsylvania in the, the rural uh, corridors of the state. Those, those were uh, critical errors. And again, you know, 70, 80,000 votes swing and we're having a different conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's, I think the key lesson for us is to learn. It's, it's very hard to elect a Democrat uh, three terms in a row as president. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the end of uh, 2000, uh, I heard some people saying, Bush, Gore, what's the difference? We saw very early on that the differences were enormous. Uh, once again in 2016, you know, we saw voters who uh, were disaffected and said, you know, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, what's the difference? They went for third-party voters or third-party candidates. And uh, it, it, it took a nanosecond to figure out that the differences are enormous. And so uh, that's why I think you know, part of the lesson for me is we need to have a consistent organizing presence in the Democratic Party so that we're talking to voters in urban, suburban, and rural America about the issues that matter most. Uh, we allowed Republicans to hijack 
our economic message. Uh, we didn't make the basic house calls in core constituencies that, uh, uh, as a result, felt left out and stayed home, or some even voted for uh, third-party candidates. And you add up the votes of third-party candidates, and that was uh, a difference maker as well. Uh, it's, it, what it illustrates is that we, we have democracy. Um, uh, success is all about having a 12-month-a-year strategy of connecting with voters. And uh, I'm a big believer in data analytics, uh, but uh, data analytics can't supplant house calls, can't supplant organizing, can't supplant talking to people. Um, and, and when we allow it to do so, we do that at our peril. Um, do you think that, you know, given that there's a lot of grassroots energy, you know, the party doesn't have um, a single, uh, you know, head leader, basically, right, since since uh, Obama's no longer in the White House. Will the DNC chair become the de facto leader of the Democratic Party? Well, there's no one leader of the party. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the DNC leader will be an important face of the party. And I think what we need to do is to uh, work in collaboration, not just with uh, other Democrats in the Senate and the House, but uh, with other movements. Uh, we, we don't need to be leading these movements, uh, but what we need to do is play a conspicuous role, demonstrate to people, uh, not just Democrats, but demonstrate to uh, uh, unaffiliated folks, to, to millennials who aren't yet uh, convinced that the Democratic Party is their home, that uh, their values are our values. I, I think there's tremendous opportunity out there because uh, while millennials, for instance, may be less attached to institutions than, say, my generation, um, their altruism is remarkable, and their values are, in fact, the values of the Democratic Party. And so what we have to do is, whether it's the, the organizing to um, help protect uh, Planned Parenthood or the organizing to help protect the labor movement, the organizing to help protect the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we need to be a conspicuous presence helping our partners uh, in these movements. And we need to show uh, voters, whether or not they're Democrats, voters who share our values, that uh, we are making a big difference in their lives. We're fighting for their values day in and day out. And I think when people see that conspicuous evidence that uh, the people out in the front line playing important roles are uh, from the Democratic Party. That's what brings them here. And, and there's a tremendous reservoir right now of, of people who have been casual participants in democracy to date by their own admission who have said to me, Tom, I, I have come to realize how mistaken I was to have been such a casual participant in democracy and uh, point me in the right direction because I want to help. I, I see that energy everywhere I go, uh, whether it was in Kansas or whether it was in uh, uh, Wisconsin the day before. And it's our, our, it's our, our uh, challenge and opportunity to uh, transform this moment uh, where there's so much energy uh, into a movement. And I think we can do it. I think we can make a difference this year in New Jersey and in uh, Virginia. And I think we can make a difference on, on issues like uh, preserving health care access. 
things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And, and, sir, you've racked up a, a lot of significant endorsements from Eric Holder recently to Joe Biden. Um, what do those endorsements mean in this kind of race? Well, I'm proud of the fact that we've had a, a wide array of folks who've um, gotten on our campaign, you know, from, you know, again, the attorney general and the vice president uh, to uh, the farm workers and the firefighters and uh, uh, UFCW. And what it reflects is really my life's work. I've, I've taken on a lot of fights, um, and I've been fighting for uh, progressive causes, whether it's uh, taking on Joe Arpaio, the, the rogue sheriff in Arizona, or fighting for marriage equality, or uh, taking on uh, predatory lenders who uh, uh, you know, transform the American dream and the American nightmare through millions of unwitting, well-intentioned, hard-working homeowners. Um, I've been a fighter all my life, and I think we need a fighter in the DNC. And we also need a you know, somebody who knows how to transform a complex organization that's not firing on all cylinders. Uh, I, I was proud of the work we were able to do at the Labor Department to to um, transform the agency, which was uh, second to the last and best places to work when I got there. And when I left, we were in the top third. And when people are excited to go to work in the morning, they're more productive. And we can help people at scale. And so I think the wide array of uh, endorsements from mayors and, and others um, reflects uh, the broad swath of uh, folks that I've been able to work with and, and add value to. And that's what I hope to do with the DNC is uh, make sure that our Democratic Party is fighting, firing on all cylinders, make sure that we're motivating and inspiring people uh, to... Uh, stay in the party and come into the party and, and uh, you know, we're fighting for the basic values that I think are the core of the Democratic Party, economic opportunity and security and, um, and inclusion. Uh, we're the party that believes that uh, our nation's diversity is our greatest strength and, and we don't benefit when we pit one group against another. That's, that's quintessentially un-American. All right. Well, uh, that seems like a good point to uh, give you the last word. Um, I really appreciate your time today, and uh, best of luck um, at the end of the month. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. Next week, Caitlin will be back with more interviews with the candidates for Democratic National Committee Chairman, including Jamie Harrison. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.